0: Now let's address the elephant in the room with coronavirus. Okay, I need you guys to tune in. Uh, What I'm going to tell you is not my own. I'm plagiarizing it from the Gospel Coalition, but it's really good information. And the question is, how are we as Christians to respond to the coronavirus? So I'm going to give you just a a quick flyover of the article. Uh, Number one, faith is our fuel, not fear. We are not going to be like the rest of the world that is responding in fear. Because rather than being anxious and worrying, Jesus says, Get on your knees and pray and place your faith in me. There's a quote from this article that says, Remind yourself continually, it takes the same amount of energy to worry as to pray. One leads to peace, the other to panic. Choose wisely. We're going to be a people that are praying. We're not going to be fueled by fear, but by faith. Number two, let's be quick to help and slow to hide. Your purpose is not to just dive into quarantine and be a doomsday prepper. Your purpose is to be somebody that is entering in and is helping. And I'll get to the the wisdom piece next, but the question that the article asked is, we're so quick to say, how can I stay healthy? We're slow to ask, how can I help? We need to be just as quick to say, how can I help? And here's the reason why. Our Savior put on flesh and stepped into our sickness, sin, and death. He healed the sick and cared for the hurting. We must do likewise. Number three, we can be full of faith and also be practicing wisdom. <laughs> okay, here's the deal. Wash your hands. Stop touching your face. You don't need to do that anyways. Um, if you're not feeling well, don't go to work. Don't show up to salt company. And be aware that just because you are late teens, early 20s, you're, you are not indestructible, although you think you are. And I said the same thing, 93% of the deaths are over the age of 70. True. That's what, you're probably going to come into contact with people that are more than likely to suffer serious harm than you. So be aware of other people and don't be selfish. Number four, we must not miss gospel opportunities. God is not surprised that the coronavirus is spreading, and in fact, he is going to build his church because the coronavirus is spreading. I believe that. People are in panic. They're afraid of what's going to happen next. They're hyper-concerned about their health, and you have a living hope in Jesus Christ. You can speak into their fear with confidence and courage, and you can proclaim the gospel into their fear and say, man, I don't have to worry about my health. Yes, I want to be healthy, but the worst thing that can happen to me is and I'm going to be with my Savior in heaven. Death is a doorway to heaven. It's the best thing that can happen to me. And you don't have to be weird about it, but speak confident, speak faithfully into the lives of people that you come in contact with. And lastly, I just want to say, as a ministry, our goal is to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. So you personally, as a part of our ministry are to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. How you respond to people in person and on social media should reflect Jesus. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak and slow to become angry. And when you do speak, speak with grace and practice care and consideration. Because if you're angry, people don't listen to you anyways. Collectively, Our goal is to honor and glorify Jesus. And here's how it's going to play out. Our default is to gather and worship King Jesus because that's what the Bible calls us to do. We want to gather as a group and we want to be a group of believers that are worshiping together. However, we also want to honor and submit to authority because that's our biblical response too. So we don't know our plan yet, because campuses haven't exactly communicated what their rules are with student orgs. They have communicated what they're gonna do with their learning, but they haven't said what we can and can't do. So we will give you more details, but the plan is we're gonna be here unless campus, our city, or our country restrict that. And if that's the case, we're going to honor them, and we're gonna submit to them, and we'll find an alternative. You guys good with that? Sweet. All right, we're going to dig in to our worship series. So if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you have a cell phone, pull it out, download the Bible app, and check it out. We're going to be in Psalm 95, uh, but before we get there, I want to set the stage. So we're in our worship series. A three-part series, week one, Nathan taught what is worship, and he defined worship as a response to who God is and what God has done. Last week, Kyler preached, why do we worship, and gave a clear and compelling message that God deserves our worship. It's a pretty clear and concise why God deserves our worship. Tonight, we're asking the question, how do we worship? We're going to get a little more practical But before we get there, I want to just talk high level. What is worship? What are we talking about when we say worship? Worship is not a musical genre. Worship is a way of life, okay? You could go to a worship playlist on Spotify, but that is not, worship isn't confined to your musical genre. Worship is a way of life. And it's defined as a valuing or treasuring of God above all things, So if you were at conference, Mark Vance taught on Romans 12, 1 and 2, I would strongly suggest you go back and listen to that if you weren't there. Or if you were there, go back and listen to it. This is your true and proper worship to God, to be a living sacrifice, to give him your life. The God that laid down his life for you, the only reasonable response is for you to lay down your life for him. Here's what worship looks like. Studying for the glory of God. Showing up to class for the glory of God. Sitting next to the international student that doesn't have a friend for the glory of God. Studying with the international student that doesn't understand English for the glory of God. Not clicking on the website that you wanted to click on for the glory of God. That is worship. But what we've been talking about and will continue to unpack tonight is this aspect or component of worship where we gather together and we sing songs and we express that Jesus is worth our worship, worth our life. So tonight when we're talking about how do we worship, I'm practically going to walk us through, Psalm 95 is going to walk us through, how do we do this thing, this corporate gathering where we sing and express that we value or treasure Jesus above all things. It's merely an expression, but it is vitally important because it's a command. So if we have to ask the question, how do we worship? It creates this weird tension because it means if we have to ask how we can do it, it means we can do it wrong. So the question I'm asking you is, what if you have been worshiping wrong this whole time? And if that's the case... I'll follow it up with, what if your worship has actually been negatively affecting your faith walk? Because many of us, myself included, can take the default of stepping in this room and saying, I'm going to check a religious box and it's going to lead me closer to Jesus. But as we're going to see in our text tonight, he wants a heck of a lot more than for us just to show up and check a box. And showing up and checking a box can have a negative effect. So How do we worship? Let's jump into Psalm 95, titled, Let Us Sing Songs of Praise. I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll unpack it together. Starting in verse 1, David writes, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, As on the day at Massa, when the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A lot going on. We're going to walk through five movements. So if you're a note taker, you can say one, two, three, four, five. We're going to start at the top. One, how do we worship? Raise your voice. Verses one and two, let us sing to the Lord. Your translation might actually say, let us shout to the Lord. We have to open our mouths. Biblical praise and worship requires you to open your mouth. Because remember, if you were here week one, Nathan said, worship is ascribing what is true. Saying what is true about God. we going to say what is true about God or what he's done with our mouths closed? You can't. If you're a Christian and you're in this room tonight and you're not singing, why? Why are you not singing? I can probably name a few reasons why. Number one, uh, you're like me and the Bible commands us to make a joyful noise and you can't do that. (laughs) That's a possibility. You don't like to sing and you're not good at it. I hear you. I'm with you. Uh, But maybe you're just saying, I'm an introspective person. I just want to read because that's more my personality. Well, I'm here to burst your bubble. Worship is not about you. Stop being selfish and open your mouth. Because we serve a God that is worthy of our worship, and worship is God-focused, not man-focused. Stop looking at yourself and look to God. It brings up number two. We sing to God. But the bigger question is why. Our text is pretty clear. Um, I'm just going to read through verses 3 to 7 again. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, And his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Sing to God because we're his. He created us. And this crazy picture of creation plays out before us in these verses. We see God holds the depths of the sea, the heights of the mountains in his hand. We serve a powerful God that spoke these things into existence. The vastness of creation, God speaks into existence. And you may fail to see that living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. (laughs) But get in your car and drive west someday come across the Rocky Mountains, look at them. So vast, incredible. And to think that our God spoke them into existence. You hit Sequoia National Park and you see trees that make you look like you're an ant. Huge, booming trees God speaks these things into existence. You get to the Pacific Ocean and you look out and all you can see is the deep blue sea. Our God spoke those things into existence. Yet the same God is personal. The same God that speaks creation into existence. In Genesis, we see he forms mankind with his hands. He sweeps us up from the dust and he breathes life into our nostrils. We serve a personal God. The God that speaks into existence the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Ocean is a personal God that knows the amount of hairs on your head. That should leave us in awe. He is our maker and he knows us inside and out. But we're not only his because he made us. Verse 1 says, Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We are God's people because we are purchased. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, you guys. We can't miss this. We're not born into the family of God. We are born separated from God because you and me, we fall short. Taylor talked about, even in worship, like, man, I am quick to make idols. God's standard is holiness. And let me tell you, I was not a holy dude today. I lost my patience. You can ask Michaela or Jenny. <laughs> I missed the standard of holiness. But God in his loving kindness, says, I know you can't measure up because you have to live a perfect life and you can't, but I'm going to give you my one and only son. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, perfect obedience for those of you that were in Gospel 101. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live and he died the gruesome death that you deserve. We can't move on from that. We can't graduate from that because that is the core foundation of who we are. I'm turning seven years old tomorrow as a a believer in Christ. Come on, let's go. Seven years, but the, the reality is I'm 28. I've spent 21 years of my life running from God. Much like many of you in this room, you've been running from God. And he's been pursuing you like crazy. And you've been sinning. You've been trying to figure it out your own way. And you are empty. I know that because I've been in your shoes. And Jesus said, hey, come on. Come home. I'm your maker, but I'm your savior. right? I saved you from that. Stop running down that road. Come home. He's inviting us in as the rock of our salvation. And David uses this term to be two things, theological and experiential. So he wants us to engage both our head and our heart. This causes us to do two things. One, we have to dwell. We have to think about what is actually true of us. And we have to think about what is actually true of God. And that Romans 12 passage that Mark Vance teaches through, it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battle for your identity starts in your mind, but it doesn't stop there. It has to move to your heart. As you think through what is true of me, what is true of God, it has to sink into our heart and prompt us to respond because we, we know areas we fall short. It's not hard to think back and think through our sin. And we can talk about Jesus being a savior, but maybe we need to dwell on what would happen if he didn't save us. Where would we be? <laughs> if we hadn't experienced what we've experienced, where would we be? Where would we go? And that needs to well up within us. And from that area, we respond to God from our heart. Number four, you worship God from your heart. You have to do the work of dwelling to worship. Worship is to respond to God rightly. Do the work of dwelling to respond rightly to God. I kind of opened with this, but Jesus is not after your lip service. He actually rebuked the religious people of his day and said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Don't let that be you. God doesn't want your lip service. He's not impressed by you showing up on a Thursday night or a Sunday He wants your heart. And when we respond from the heart, we see two responses. Verses one and two, we see joy and thanksgiving. I kind of said like, hey, You can't make a joyful noise. It's kind of true for some of you dudes especially. But you can sing from a joyful heart, and Jesus loves that. Sing from a joyful heart. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. These words are actually designed, we can lose it in translation, to be like vigorous. And so what comes to mind is a video I'm going to show you guys. Jeremiah, you can cue it up. (laughs) This is exactly what David is talking about. (laughs) This type of response, a vigorous, a vicious, a sincere response. (laughs) This engaging celebration. That is what we are called to do. And believe me, there are introverts in that crowd. (laughs) But here's the deal. They're dwelling on the outcome of the basketball game. And when the ball goes through the hoop, that's all they care about. And how are they responding? They're worshiping, really. They're worshiping a ball going through a hoop. Isn't that freaking sad? That we have people, some in this room, myself included, that get more excited about a ball going through a hoop than the creator of the world saving your soul. Come on. Let's wake up. There is good news. Jesus Christ died to save sinners like you and me, of whom I'm the foremost. We need to take that to heart, and we need to respond. Joy, thanksgiving, or maybe you're like verses 6 and 7. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now, some of you are like me, and you don't need help being brought low and feeling (laughs) Um, I'm already there. I used to have a lot more fun hanging out in Junior high ministry because I felt big and powerful and in control um, sometimes. But here's the deal. Some of us need to be brought low consistently, daily. In fact, I would say most of us need to get on our knees consistently and remember that we are very small. Because bowing in their context, was to come before somebody and say, you are of greater importance. You are bigger with more power and more value than me. You might look big next to your little brother, but before a big and holy God, you are minuscule, and you are in desperate need of his hand in your life. Get on your knees. Kneel down and understand that you are in desperate need of a big and powerful God. Either way, whether you are responding in joy and thanksgiving or in awe and reverence on your knees, I struggle to understand how our bodies would not would not be involved. I'm not asking you to put on a show. I'm not asking you to like jump and dance around because that's what Christians do. That's putting on a show. And that's putting eyes on you just as much as not singing is. But studies show that 50% of our communication is body posture. And if that's true of everything else in life, why would it be different in worship? Newsflash, it isn't. So if you aren't engaging your body, I'm struggling to understand how you or me are actually worshiping from our heart. (laughs) It's just an honest question. It's going to look different for all of us. I understand that. But as you read through the Psalms, you will see a biblical response to worship looks like this. Clapping, singing, shouting, dancing, lifting up your eyes, getting on your knees. We are to be people that engage our bodies in worship. That is just an overflow of what God is actually doing in your heart, of what you're feeling, of what you're sensing. Now, you might be asking the question, but what do I do if I'm not feeling or sensing? Because for people in this room, that's true tonight. You're in a tough place. You don't feel God. You don't sense that he's near. And you're saying, well, what about me? As we look through the tail end of verse 7 through 11, we see our response. Number four, respond in faith and obedience. David here is referencing Israel, God's people. Um, You can read more about it in Exodus 17 or Numbers 14 if you're uh, super ambitious. He's talking about the days of Meribah, which is translated quarreling, and Massa, translated testing. So here's the backstory: Israel is enslaved to Egypt. Egypt is oppressive, and they have sheer control of Israel. But God comes to Israel's leader, Moses, and he says, I will deliver you from Egypt, and I will give you the promised land that I promised to your ancestors. And the land flowing with milk and honey, it is yours. Moses and Aaron... Take it to heart. And what do they do? They go and they plead with Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Let us go. Let us go. Let us go. Everybody's maybe some of you have heard the the VBS song. Yeah, you're singing it in your head right now. I know. Uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, let my people go. Yeah, sweet. (laughs) So here's the deal. Pharaoh didn't actually, like, just say, okay, sounds good. It took 10 plagues. And the death of the firstborn in Egypt for him to say, get the heck out of my country. (laughs) Get out, run. After 430 years of slavery, Israel is set free. 600,000 men with wives and children are set free and they're sent into the wilderness. God is guiding them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then Pharaoh comes to his senses and he's like, what did I do? I just set like a million people free. Let's go get them back. So Pharaoh sends the Egyptian army after him. What does God do? Anybody? He parts the Red Sea. He lets Israel pass through the Red Sea, and then Egypt tries to follow him through and he closes in on them. Israel is set free and they're on the other side. And what are they doing? They're complaining. They're asking the question, why the heck are we not in Egypt? At least we had food in Egypt. Man, I hate being set free. Be in Egypt. Well, what does God do? He sends them food. (laughs) He's a gracious God. From heaven, He sends manna and meat, and He says, Here's your food. Complainers, eat your food. They eat their food, and then what? I'm thirsty. My goodness. And then God is like, okay, here's the deal. Moses, strike the rock and I'll let water come out of a rock. Gives him water from a rock. And God says, call this day the day of Meribah and Massah. Because the people ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? Here's what's going on. It's not that God isn't moving. Because when I tell that story, we all laugh. And we all see the evident ways that God is moving. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, split the Red Sea, food and water from heaven. Their eye was not on how God was moving, their eyes were on the wilderness. They were dwelling on their circumstances, not the truth of who God is, not the promise that he had given to Moses that I will give you the promised land. They weren't thinking about that, they were dwelling on their circumstances. So you, me, we need to stop dwelling on our circumstances. When we dwell on what's going wrong, (laughs) when we sit here and ask, where is God? Rather than looking for all the evident ways he's working in our life, we are complainers. And the result, as we see in scripture, is the hardening of our hearts. This terrifying concept of, Wow, as I begin to doubt God's goodness and provision in my life, I can actually harden my heart to him. I can actually distance myself from him, not because of anything he's done, but because of what I am welling up, what I am dwelling on. So I plead with you tonight, Salt Company, do not dwell on your circumstances. Do not dwell on what is not going right in your life. Because as you do that, you will be a complainer and you will have a hardened heart day by day. And you will struggle to see the goodness of God. Here's what's true. God fulfilled his promise. Israel got to the promised land. After that generation that doubted him wandered for 40 years and died in the wilderness... Their kids inherit the promised land. God's promises are true. He's true to his word. He's faithful. And maybe you just need to hear some of the promises tonight to cling to. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Ephesians 1 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including coronavirus, <laughs> will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Romans 8.28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm not asking you to perform. I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm asking you to dwell. To dwell on the promises of God's character. To dwell on what is true. And as you do that, guess what? You're still in the wilderness. Your circumstances will not change. A pastor had said to me before, the chaos around you does not have to be the chaos within you you can worship your way through the wilderness. That's the way through. Worship your way through the wilderness. And thankfully, number five, you don't do this alone. Worship in community. Psalm 95, we see 10 different plural pronouns Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. You worship as community, and you do that with purpose. Here's the deal. Worship is a vertical act with a horizontal impact. And what I mean by that is your worship is between you and God alone. You are crying out to your Father in heaven. You are crying out to your Savior, and you are worshiping Him for what He has done in your life. But you're doing it in community because there are people in our midst that need to see you worship because their hearts are not moved yet. (laughs) And they need to see people in their midst that are worshiping the same Jesus, trusting the same promises. People that have actually been through the wilderness before and have come out and are still worshipers. The people in your midst need to see that. So if you're the one that's worshiping, worship freely and worship God because he's worthy of your praise. But understand that your worship is pleasing to God and good for others. If you're struggling to be there, again, don't fake it. But as you dwell on the promises and as you look around, look at how other people are worshiping. The more you know other people's stories, the more you'll rejoice in their worship. But as you see their worship, let your heart be moved to a place of gratitude and worship. Here's the question. How do I worship? You worship by looking to God in faith, dwelling, and responding to him from your heart. Do the work of dwelling on God, and you will respond rightly to God. That is a fact. Do the work of dwelling on God, and you will respond rightly to God and we have to do this with urgency. Our text says, today if you hear his voice, and guess what? You have heard God's voice because the Bible has been read in front of you. We have to respond with urgency because the state of our heart depends on it. You will have a heart of joy and thanksgiving, a heart of awe and reverence, or you will harden your heart. You cannot, leave out of, you cannot walk out of here and leave neutral how you handle this next worship set is vitally important. Applications, walking out. If this is true, what needs to change in my life? I'm going to beat this until it's dead. Dwell on God. (laughs) And don't let that start when you come to Salt Company and it hits 8 o'clock because if you haven't done the work ahead of time, you're missing out. If I'm prepping a sermon and Taylor's prepping a worship set, we want people that are coming here ready to worship. Before you even step foot in that door, I don't care if you put your car and park in the parking lot and spend five minutes just doing heart surgery. Do that. If you have to walk in late to worship rightly, reflect on your sin. Reflect on what's gone wrong, and then reflect on the win. Right? Don't just sit in the sin. Go to the win. Look at the victory we have in Christ, and come in ready to worship. Do the work of dwelling. As we worship, what can we do? Let it affect your heart. <laughs> One thing that I've learned within the last few months is not just to sing the lyrics and like go through the motions with the lyrics, but to actually let the lyrics become personal to me. So when I'm singing about sin, I'm thinking about the impatience. I'm thinking about the idolatry. And then when I, when I see anything about, man, God is in control. God is sovereign. He saved my soul. I think back to seven years ago, <laughs> When I was wandering and he saved my soul, and today he saved my soul, he called me back to himself with gentleness and said, hey, I know you've been impatient, but I love you. Make it personal. And as you engage, let loose. Like, (laughs) take your eyes off yourself. Let your body engage and respond. Again, not to put on a show, not to perform for anybody but to allow yourself to actually experience the worship that God has designed for you. If you're not willing to just trust God, I promise you nothing weird is going to happen to you. <laughs> if you've watched televisions and you're like, oh man, I don't want to have a seizure. like Don't worry about that. Let loose and trust that you are going to experience God in a new way the more you just submit to letting him work in you. And lastly, if you are the person that's struggling to do that, I just ask you to look around and let others people, other people's worship move you. Let it bring you to a place of trust and obedience and worship because God is faithful to his promise. He fulfilled it to Israel in bringing them to the promised land and he's fulfilled it to you and me. We have a better and bigger picture than Israel does because we see Jesus Christ. We see the finished work on the cross. That is proof that he is true to his word, and he's worthy of our worship. Pray with me. Yeah, Father, you are you're powerful, God, you're holy, you're set apart, and you know that I'm not. (laughs) You know that I'm small and weak and imperfect. Uh, You know the ways that I've fallen short this week, things that I've treasured above you, ways that I've been prideful, ways that I've been discontent and you didn't hold back. You sent your only son. Jesus, you came while I was an enemy, and you died in my place to invite me into new life. Yeah, God, you move in our midst tonight. Would you call to mind the ways that we've fallen short, and more so, God, would you overwhelm us with a sense of grace? You help us be people that worship freely, that we worship obediently, that we worship wholeheartedly, not just as we sing, but as we live our lives, Jesus, because you are worthy. I pray this in your name. Amen.